Okay, so in 1993, Nike released a commercial that quickly became infamous. And in that commercial, it profiled Charles Barkley. And part of the commercial, Charles Barkley said, I am not a role model. Parents should be role models. Now, now Charles Barkley got a lot of bad flack for this commercial and his quote. His actually, I think his heart was in the right place. He wanted kids to have role models of people they knew, their parents, people in their houses. But he was very quickly to say, just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. Not to be outdone, Tupac said, I don't want to be a role model. So extra points if you had Barkley and Tupac at the beginning of today's sermon. So uh, extra points for you if you, if you predicted that. Like, what, what do you do with those quotes? Why, why bring up those quotes? Last week, we talked about how in life, we need a vision. We need something we're living for. We need something that we look toward or somebody we look toward as a role model, as a figure to say, I want my life to look like that. I want to live in that way. I want to move in that direction. And as I was thinking about that last week, it brought to mind 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. And I want to throw that verse up here for you to see. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That verse in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about some Old Testament Bible stories, very similar to what we're going to talk about this morning. And he says those Bible stories, those characters, those events, we look at those and they become an example for us of what we don't want to desire. Now, I hope what I say next will be helpful for you in your Bible reading. When you think about Old Testament Bible stories, the kind that you learn at vacation Bible school, the kind you learn in preschool, Sunday school, the kind you learn when you're in student ministry. When you think about those Old Testament Bible stories, the number one goal of those Bible stories is not to teach you to be a better person. The number one goal of those Old Testament Bible stories is to point you to Jesus. And we have taken such strides in kids ministry and student ministry and church over the years where a lot of us grew up in going to Sunday school and it was like, here's the Bible story, do this, don't do this. So much of the new curriculum that's around, so much of the teaching that happens now has taken such a great step forward because now these kids, they learn these Bible stories and they learn how it points them toward Jesus. And I'm here to celebrate that and to tell you that is the main reason for those Old Testament Bible stories is to point you to Jesus. At the same time, Scripture is clear that we have these stories in the Bible because they teach us here is a good way to live. Here's a way that honors the Lord, and here's a path you don't want to go down. What do you do in parenting? What do you do in coaching? What do you do in teaching? You look at people and you say, this is a path that leads to life. You want to follow these friends. These people will lead you in the right direction. And oh yeah, don't follow these losers. Like that's a path that leads to death. Like I, I'm ahead of you in, in life. I can tell you I've been around the block a few times. I've seen things happen. If you keep going that direction in life, you don't like where that's going to go. And so we're always learning. There's one example I can follow that's a good example. And there's another example I could follow and you don't wanna follow that example. In premarital counseling, one of the questions I'll always talk to couples about is what aspect of your family of origin, your family background, what part of your family do you want to bring into your marriage 
And what part of your family do you say, ah, I probably need to leave that behind? Like, that's not especially healthy. You ask this question when you go into college. Young adults, you're asking this question all the time. What about my family do I want to keep? What about my family do I think I don't need to follow that example? This idea of there's an example I want to follow, there's an example I should not follow, there's a path that leads to life, there's a path that leads to death, that idea, here's what I want to tell you, is built into Hebrews chapter 3. So look at this. I want you to see how Hebrews chapter 3 works in your Bible. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, which we looked at last week, the purpose there is the author is giving you an example and say, do this. Like, this is a good example. Look to Moses, and even more than looking to Moses, look to Jesus. This is the path that leads to life. You want to go down this path. Then in verse 7, he introduces what we're going to look at today, and it's the bad example. <laughs> These are the friends that your parents tell you, yeah, please don't go that road. Please don't spend time with them. Please don't let them influence your life. You don't want to go that way. And the way the second half of this chapter is set up is he's going to give us a psalm from the Old Testament, which we're going to look at, that's going to tell us about this group of people. He's going to break it up and give you commands that you can use in your life to go the right direction. And then he's going to finish with a series of questions that your parents or teachers, they ask you this question and they really don't expect you to respond because the answer is built into the question. Like, I'm not asking you this question to respond. I just want you to listen because you're going to get the idea when you get this question. So what we're looking at today, very simply, is there's an example in Scripture that leads to death, and the author of Hebrews is begging his church not to go that direction. Please don't go that way. All right, let's see how this works. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Let's watch how this works in God's Word. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. If you've been with us a few weeks, you'll notice in your Bible the spacing or the font might look different because what's happening here is the author is quoting from the Old Testament. And specifically, he's quoting from Psalm chapter 95. So he's drawing this poem, this psalm from the Old Testament, and it says there at the beginning, as the Holy Spirit says, kids, teenagers, please hear me on this. The Bible is the Word of God spoken to us through the power of the Spirit of God. So when you read your Bible, when you go to Sunday school and you interact with your Bible, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you present tense in that moment. When you read your Bible at home, the Spirit of God is speaking to you in that moment. Notice it doesn't say, as the Holy Spirit said in the past tense. It's when you encounter the Word of God, He is speaking to you right now. The Word of God is speaking to us through the power of the Spirit of God. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, pay attention. Listen to what He has to say. Well, what does Psalm 95 have to talk, tell us about? A rebellion and a day of testing. And you're like, well, what is that rebellion? What is that day of testing? Well, let's keep reading, and we'll, we'll find out. Verse 9. 
What is this rebellion? What is this day of testing? It's where your forefathers put me to the test, God says, and saw my works for a 40-year period, for 40 years. Verse 10, therefore, I was provoked. I was angry with that generation of people and said, they are always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Kind of put a pin in that. We come back to that next week. It's all, Hebrews chapter 4 is all about that idea of rest. Skip down to verse 16 in your Bible. Let's get the other half of this example. Verse 16 in your Bible, scroll down your phone. It says, here's the series of questions. So previously we had the Psalm 95. Here's the series of questions. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who, who was involved in the rebellion? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Who was he angry with for this 40-year period? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. If you are a Bible highlighter or a Bible underliner, the word in verse 19 that you're underlining is the word unbelief. You could just take unbelief and put it as a banner over these stories because that's what these stories are about. Now, the question we have to start asking ourselves is, I know that the author of Hebrews, he has some stories in the background that he's thinking about. What are those stories? What is he talking about in these verses, in the Psalm 95, in the questions? So what I want to do is I want to talk you through these stories from the Old Testament. I really, really, really wanted to use a flannel board to talk you through these questions. Did anybody go to Sunday school with a flannel board, Sunday school teacher? Man, like that's Bible study right there. Like that's the good stuff. Turns out flannel board is a little more expensive than I realized. Uh, and I was like, I'm just not trusting myself to pull off the flannel board uh, this week. So instead, you get this up here. High quality Bible artwork pictures right here for you, okay? In the background, in the background of Hebrews chapter 3 are kind of these two prominent sections in the Bible. First is Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus 15 through 17. So on your left up here, the people are coming out of Egypt. They have been rescued from slavery. They've been brought through the Red Sea miraculously. God has rescued them, and he's taking them toward the promised land. And they walk a few steps, they go a few days, and they are very thirsty. And they get to some water, and the water is bad. Like, it's bitter. You, you can't drink it. And so what do the people do? Well, immediately, they start to grumble. Like, this lady in the middle over here, she is not having it. She said, like, I was brought out of Egypt. I was rescued. Nobody told me anything about walking through the desert, going through the wilderness, being thirsty. Like, they start to grumble. They start to complain. And God miraculously, through Moses, provides water for the people. Well, then you get to Exodus chapter 16, and the people get hungry, and God gives them manna from heaven. And then you get to Exodus chapter 17, and they get thirsty again. They can't find water. 
And so over here, this guy is like, did you not see my wife earlier? Like, she's not doing well. She's not excited. Life is not good for me. What are you doing, Moses? Like, I'm thirsty. I need water. And Moses takes his walking stick, his staff, on God's command, and he hits the rock, and what happens? The water pours out for the people, and they are able to drink. We don't have time to talk about it, but there's a mirror story to this. There's a parallel story to this that happens in Numbers chapter 20. It's really fascinating. You come back around to see it. Here's what I want you to think about. The other background story is Numbers chapter 14. So Numbers chapter 14 the people are right on the edge of going into the promised land. They were rescued out of Egypt, rescued out of slavery. They go through the wilderness. God provides water. He provides food. He provides water again. He gives them the law. He gives them the tabernacle. He gives them the sacrifices. They are ready to go into the promised land. And he selects 12 spies, Moses does, who are going to go into the promised land and, and see this area. Now, if you can see the map over on the right side, the people at this point are kind of in the south, southwest part of the area where they're going to go up into the promised land. So they're in a position where they can take I-44 into the metro, into the city, okay? So they're kind of down in that like Newcastle, Bridge Creek, Chickasha area, and all they have to do is follow I-44, and it's going to take them right up into the promised land. Now, the spies, the 12 spies, they go into the promised land and what do they find? Kids, you could tell this story way better than I could because you guys know these stories so well. What do they find when they go into the promised land? They find giants, and they find fortified cities. They walk in, they're like, oh my goodness, have you seen the traffic when you drive up I-44 into the metro? Like this, it's bad. There's giants, and there's fortified cities. We can't go that direction. It's not going to end well if we go that direction. But what do they also find? They say there's a Sam's and a Costco there. Have you seen the grapes? <laughs> like, I know the traffic's bad. I know it's not good, but have you seen those globe grapes that they provide at Sam's and Costco? Not those terrible cotton candy ones that some of you guys buy, but like the, the really good like globe grapes that you can get. It's good. So they, they're going to go in the promised land. Now remember, remember, what has God done for them up to this point? Well, I don't know. He just split the Red Sea, rescued them from an evil world power, take them through the wilderness, provides everything they need. They're going to go into the promised land. There's giants and fortified cities, and there's grapes and land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, what happens next? Kids, you guys know this part of the story. What happens next? There are 10 spies who say, yeah, we're not going to go in. Like this, we're not going to make it. We're going to get destroyed if we go in the promised land here. This is, this is not going to work. But there are two Joshua and Caleb, who say, no, God promised, and he will be with us, and he will defeat these enemies. All we have to do is trust him. Well, spoiler alert, the 10 spies unfortunately went out, and the people don't go at this point into the promised land. And how does God respond? He responds with wrath. He says that everyone over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to go in. The people wonder for 40 years in this area, and finally they have to go up on the east side, and they have to take I-40 in, coming in from Midwest City to get into the promised land, because they don't go when the promise was given to them. Okay, let's talk about the rebellion. Let's talk about the testing 
that the people face at this point. What, What is the problem in Exodus chapter 17? What is the problem in Numbers chapter 14? The problem is unbelief and fear. They didn't believe God's word and God's character and God's promises. And they were more afraid of the giants and the thirst than they were of God himself. They get caught up in this unbelief. We know what, that God has provided everything for them. He has rescued them. He has said, I will take you into the promised land. All you have to do is be loyal to me and trust me. And the people don't believe that God is good for his word. Think about Adam and Eve. If you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 3, what is the temptation before Adam and Eve? Did God really say that? Is God really good? Is God really going to come through on his word? Can you trust him? Unbelief is when you don't trust another person to keep their word. There's a famous author from the old, uh, from, from the um, time right around the time of Christ. He's not a religious author, but he talks about unbelief and he tells people you should have unbelief because you shouldn't trust other people to keep their word. Some of you have been burned so many times in life by people not keeping their word, you get to a point in life that you say, I'm just not going to trust anybody. Like, I've been burned. This person didn't keep their word. This person wasn't loyal. This person let me down. And you reach a point in life that you say, I'm just not going to believe anybody. And this guy says, that's a way to keep yourself safe. But it is no way to relate to the creator of the universe. Because we are called to believe him, to trust him, to know that he is good for his word. Now, here's the cool part. So those are the stories in Exodus and Numbers. Will the people trust God? They don't. They live in unbelief and fear. Now, watch what happens, okay? Years later, Psalm 95 is written. And there's this psalm, this poem that's written to tell the people, don't be like the wilderness generation. Remember what happened to them. Then, hundreds of years later, The book of Hebrews is put together. This sermon is preached in the early church. And what does the book of Hebrews do? Reaches back and says, remember those Old Testament stories you learned in Bible school? Remember that psalm that you've seen from Psalm 95? Don't be like the wilderness generation. Guess what? July 23rd, 2023, the same Holy Spirit speaks through the word of God and tells us, remember those Bible stories? Remember Psalm 95? Remember Hebrews 3 in your Bible? Don't go down that path. Don't go down that path of unbelief and fear. Why? Because it leads to death. You know where that path leads. Don't go down that path. Right at the core of Hebrews chapter 3, the author gives you two commands built on these stories. So if you were looking at the Bibles, if you were doing this, in a kid's Sunday school class, or you were doing this in an adult Bible study, what you do is you deal with the Bible stories around the edge, and then you say there are two commands that are given to us. The first command, verse 12, based on these Bible stories, command number one is what? Take care, brothers and sisters. Watch out. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Command number one, 
watch out for unbelief. Watch out that your heart is not drawn away from the Lord because of suffering that you face in life, because of embarrassment you face about being associated with Jesus, because you forget how good God has been to you in the past, and you forget how good God's promises are for you in the future, and you begin to fall away from him. Now skip ahead just for a second to, to verse 14. So just jump just a little bit. Look at this idea that's put forward in verse 14 here. Verse 14 is connected very closely to verse 12. Verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ. We know what it is to be saved. We know what it is to have the promised land in front of us. We've come to share in Christ if, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now I want to remind you, Emmaus, this is one of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. If you weren't here several weeks ago and you didn't write these down, I'll give them to you again. You'll have to write them down, but if, if you're curious about it, there are five of these warning passages in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, and Hebrews chapter 12. Okay, so it's 2, 3, 6, 10, and 12. If you missed that, we get it from somebody here, ask me later. These warning passages are really, really hard to understand. Denominations are made and divided over how people interpret and understand these warning passages. Because you read them one way, and it can sound like you could lose your salvation. You could be a Christian, be saved, and if you don't do something, you've lost that salvation. Other people look at it and they say these warning passages aren't talking about losing your salvation. What they do is they reveal whether or not you were truly saved to begin with. They reveal what kind of faith you had all along. And I would tell you, I lean in that direction. I understand the other side. I lean in that side that says we don't lose our salvation. We, don't, we can't lose being a child of God. But these warning passages are very clear that if we are not holding firm to faith in Jesus— it shows that we have not been saved. It shows that we don't understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They reveal our heart. They, re they reveal our faith. And so what we all want you to understand here is you can't lose your salvation, but true salvation reveals itself in a faith that keeps going, in a life that continues to be devoted toward Jesus. Not that you earn your salvation or have to gain your salvation, but it's my hope is in Jesus. And I put my hope fully there. And the author says, watch out that you don't lose that. And you say, man, that's kind of terrifying. Like that, that's, a, that's a hard, scary teaching in the Bible. How can I keep believing in Jesus? How can I go down the path that leads to life and not this path of losers that leads to death? Like how do I go the right direction in life? I'm glad you asked. Verse 13, what's the other command? What's the other command of verse 13? But exhort one another. Exhort is not a word we use very often. Uh, encourage. You put the word encourage in there and it works well. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do I continue to believe? How? And I'm not saying 
me individually. I'm just saying as a person, when you're asking yourself this question, how do we continue to believe? You need people around you who will love you and encourage you and challenge you and keep you accountable and say, we're going to walk down this road together. Notice the end of this verse. It says, don't be deceived by sin or watch out for the deceitfulness of sin. What is the deceitfulness of sin? This phrase is the mindset that tells, when you tell yourself, it doesn't matter what I do. Like, I can, I can do and say and go those places, and it's not going to affect me. Like, I'm still going to be a Christian, and I'm still going to show up to church, and I'm still going to follow Jesus. That, that's not going to impact me. Well, if you've lived a few years, you know that that's just not true. <laughs> like, when we go down the road of sin, it doesn't feel like we're going in the wrong direction until someone looks at your life and says, whoa, do you, do you realize which direction your life is going right now? Like, do you see what that's doing to you? You're being deceived by sin. And what happens when we're deceived by sin? It says that none of you may be hardened, that your heart would grow hard, that you would become stubborn in regard to faith. Amanda, my, my wife and I, we were talking about this uh, this last week, walking our dog around the, uh, around the lake, and we're trying to talk through what does it look like when a person begins to have a hard heart toward the Lord? This would be an amazing question in a Sunday school class, small group, that type of thing. What does it look like when your heart begins to become hard toward the Lord? And, and I can't give you all the examples and all the things, but just kind of thinking through a few things. Number one, and I know people can get mad at me about this, I get this, but a sign that your heart is hard toward the Lord is you do not care about church. You begin to say, I'm just not going to go. It doesn't matter if I go. I don't need the church to be a Christian. I can do this on my own. A sign that our heart is growing hard is our heart grows hard toward the people of God. Our heart grows hard toward church. Another sign of a hard heart is we don't care about the word of God. We don't want to receive the Word of God. We don't want to hear the Word of God. We don't want to read the Word of God. You begin to push the Bible out of your life. You begin to say, it's just another book. I don't really need to read it. I, that's a sign that, that our heart is growing hard. A sign of a hard heart is if you take the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those fruits of the Spirit, and your life looks like the opposite of those, that's definitely a sign that our heart is growing hard toward the, toward the Lord. And this verse says, watch out for that. Don't let your heart grow hard toward the Lord because you're being deceived by sin. Instead, encourage one another. And Emmaus, if I can give you something today that you would think about going home, you would think about this week. Who is encouraging you to continue to follow Jesus? Who encourages you? Who is around you that keeps you accountable and speaks into your life and says the hard things and challenges you and comforts you and says, we are not going to give up. We are going to keep following Jesus. He is worth it. Who around you is doing that? And then if you turn it inside out, for whom are you doing that? Who are you encouraging to continue to follow Jesus? This encouragement, it's really good when it comes from your family. Like, hear me celebrating that. It is good when that happens within your home. But we know it's not just what happens within the household, within the home. We need other layers of encouragement. We need other layers of accountability outside of that. You need friends 
that are speaking into your life. You need a church family that speaks into your life. You need spiritual leaders who are speaking into your life. We need this. And, and here's the question. How often do you need to be encouraged to continue to follow Jesus? How about every day that's called today, <laughs> we need help to follow Jesus? Because something comes up and you feel discouraged and you think, is this really worth it? Am I going to keep going? Every day, we need people who are speaking into our lives saying we are going to follow Jesus. You need a church family. It doesn't have to be Emmaus as your local church family. I am super biased toward Emmaus. It doesn't have to be Emmaus. But if you are here this morning, I am telling you, you need to be connected to a local church where you are encouraged to follow Jesus, where you've got people around you, and you can do that for others. I wanted to provide, I wanted to provide a final summary statement for today's, uh, today's sermon. So I put something together for you up on the screen about kind of a summary statement that true life comes through faith in Jesus based on God's word. So faith in Jesus, and you're like, oh man, I need to write this down. Hold tight, you don't have to write this down. Hopefully, as you were coming in or as you leave in a few minutes, you got a little card, a little label, and that phrase is written on that little sticky label that you got as, as you were coming in. You can put that in your Bible. You can stick that to your shirt and then take it home and do what we do with the little kids' check-in labels and accidentally wash the shirt with the label on, and then you always have it. It's, all, it's always with you. You can put it on your shirt, whatever you want to do. You can put it in your car. You, you could take that little label and put it in the inside of your Bible or your notebook. True life is found comes through faith in Jesus, based on God's word, empowered by God's spirit and God's people, and it results in wise obedience to God and faith that endures, enduring faith. That is what I want to be true for your life. There's a way that leads to life, and there's a way that leads to death. Follow the way that leads to life follow Jesus. One of the ways that we can encourage each other to continue to trust in Jesus is by taking of the Lord's Supper together. And so that's what we're going to do today as we wrap up, wrap up our service, is we're going to take of the Lord's Supper together. And, and let me be really clear. When we take of the Lord's Supper together, and you come and you get these two cups that are stacked together, and one has the bread, one has the juice, and you take them back to your, to your seat. When you do this, you don't do this to gain salvation, to make yourself right with God. This is an expression of worship that says, Jesus is my hope for life. He took care of my sin and death. He is where I find salvation. And here's the key. We do it together. That you are surrounded by people this morning who say, that's where my hope is found as well. Because you're going to go out this week and not everybody is going to believe true life is found through faith in Jesus. But you are surrounded this morning by people who believe that. And we are going to encourage one another this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray for us, and we're going to do that right now. Father, thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you for the gift of the Bible. These stories that we learn in Vacation Bible School and Kids Sunday School and Student Ministry and we know when we encounter these Bible stories, 
Your Holy Spirit is speaking to us right then. This week, when a teenager picks up their Bible in the morning, or a senior adult is studying their Bible with a friend at lunch, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to them in that moment. And God, we believe your word, and we want to listen to your word. We want our hearts to be soft toward your word, because your word points us to faith in Jesus. And God, I pray, God, I pray if there are people here this morning and their life is headed in the wrong direction, everybody around them is saying, don't go down that road. You do not want to go down that road because of where it leads. God, I pray that you would draw them back to Jesus, that you would draw them to put their faith fully in him. And God, let us be a church that encourages one another. I pray that there's nobody here that would operate on an island that would close themselves off from others. God, I pray that we would know how much we need one another in order to continue to follow after Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.